President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy have reached a tentative deal to avoid an unprecedented debt limit default. It's Monday, May 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on this Memorial Day, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan wins a runoff election to extend his two decades long leadership over the country. Also, the top cop was on the take, engaged in, as accused, issues of bribery, public corruption. Texas's attorney general has been impeached and is now awaiting trial over allegations of bribery and other misconduct. And this hour, a look into a new effort to end a penalty for military widowers who lose out on benefits once they remarry. In sports, Red Sox lose sunny and windy with highs in the upper 60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Now that President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have agreed on a way to raise the debt ceiling to avoid a government default, it's up to both men to sell the deal to their respective parties. The package would raise the debt limit for another two years, so it would not be reached again until after the elections next year. It would also cap non-defense spending at current levels this year, with a 1 percent increase in fiscal year 2025. The president said it's a compromise, meaning no one gets everything they want. This is a deal is good news, for, I believe, you'll see, for the American people. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis, a default for the first time in our nation's history. An economic recession, retirement accounts devastated, millions of jobs lost. It also protects key priorities and accomplishments and values that congressional Democrats and I have fought long for, long and hard for. Some Republicans say the agreement does not go far enough to reduce government spending. The measure goes first to the House, which is expected to vote Wednesday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken leaves today on a trip that will take him to a new NATO state, Finland, and a country still waiting to join, Sweden. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Sweden is the first stop, and Blinken will be taking part in a trade and technology meeting to align U.S. and European approaches to China. Sweden's NATO ambitions will also be high on the agenda. Turkey has been holding that up, but a top U.S. diplomat, Derek Hogan, says the U.S. hopes this will be resolved before a NATO summit in July. The NATO summit in Vilnius will be an important opportunity to further demonstrate unity and to signal our enduring commitment to Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. Blinken is also visiting Norway and Finland, NATO's newest member. He'll give a speech there that will mostly focus on Russia's war in Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. In Turkey, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has secured another five years in power. Officials say he won 52 percent of the vote in yesterday's runoff election. The Turkish lira remained at a near-record low after the election results were announced. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more from Istanbul. The lira has been weak for years, having lost more than 90 percent of its value over the past decade. It sank below 20 lira to the U.S. dollar as the campaign wound down and was barely above that as currency markets began to open. But if the markets were not thrilled with Erdogan's win, his supporters emphatically were, turning out in large numbers to hear him speak of ushering in what he calls the Turkish century and promising to deal with rampant inflation and to quickly rebuild cities devastated by a major earthquake earlier this year. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Police are investigating two shootings that happened at Revere Beach last night. Two people were injured. Officials say they aren't sure if the shootings are connected. Police closed the beach in an effort to stop the violence. Many services around Boston are closed today in observance of Memorial Day. That includes all municipal buildings, including City Hall. The city has also canceled daytime street cleaning and trash pickup is delayed in many neighborhoods. The T's subways and buses are running on a Sunday service and parking meters don't need to be fed today in most communities. Today is the last day to check out the sea of American flags planted on the Boston Common. Each one represents a military member from Massachusetts killed in one of America's wars. Tom Crohan is the co-founder and president of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund, which organizes the tribute. Every single one of these flags was a person and, you know, had a loved one. And the 37,000 flags goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. So it's just a powerful opportunity for this commonwealth to honor and remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice. A team of volunteers will work tomorrow to remove the flags. If you've ever wanted to own a lighthouse, you could be in luck. The federal government is giving away several decommissioned lighthouses, including two in Massachusetts. WBUR's John Bender reports. The two lighthouses are the Plymouth Gurnet Light Station and the Nobscut Lighthouse in Falmouth. They're no longer needed to help ships and boats navigate thanks to GPS technology. But John Kelly of the Federal Government Services Administration says the lighthouses still have historic and cultural significance. Certainly the Nobscut Light in Falmouth is a very well-known lighthouse. It's probably one of the most photographed lighthouses on Cape Cod. In addition, the uh, Plymouth Gurnet Lighthouse, um, I understand, is one of the oldest wooden lighthouses in the country. The government will first try to give the lighthouses away for free to preservation groups and nonprofits. If that doesn't work, they'll be put up for public auction. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. The Red Sox finished their series against the Diamondbacks with a loss. The final score in Arizona was 4-2. to The Sox return home to Fenway tomorrow tomorrow to, fe- to face the Cincinnati Reds. And it's a big night for the Celtics. The team will face off against the Miami Heat in Game 7 at the Garden. A win tonight would send the Seas to the NBA championships. It would also put them in the history books as the first NBA team to ever win a playoff series after losing the first three games. Tip-off is at 8.30. Sunny and windy for your Memorial Day today. Temperatures will reach the high 60s. Tonight, the winds die down as things cool off. We'll have clear skies with lows in the high 40s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden agreed on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. We've reached a bipartisan budget agreement. Now we're ready to move to the full Congress. 
and it needs to pass Congress by next week. If approved, the measure would suspend the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling until January of 2025. NPR's Jimena Bustillo is here to tell us more after a long week of staking out all the talks. Uh, Jimena, 99-page bill, a lot of spending caps. What are Republicans saying will save money? First, there are caps on non-defense expenditures to keep spending at current levels through 2024. Republicans also have a provision to limit annual growth on spending to 1% in 2025. Here's Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina who has been one of McCarthy's top negotiators. We hold vets harmless. Uh, So this means that for non-defense, non-veteran spending, uh, there is are there are significant cuts year over year. The bill would also claw back unspent COVID funding, such as money for vaccine distribution and pandemic response aid for industries like railroads and agriculture. It also takes back money appropriated to the IRS for staffing new agents. The measure reached efforts towards permitting reform that both sides were looking for and puts an end to the pause on student loan repayment and interests, which would restart around August 30th. I know work requirements were a top uh, red line for both parties. Uh, What turned out to be the final compromise? Currently, so-called able-bodied adults without dependence on food stamps and Medicaid are subject to work reporting requirements until they are 50 years old, and Republicans wanted to increase that to 55. Now, the deal brokered by the White House and top GOP negotiators does a bit less than what Republicans hoped for. It made no changes to Medicaid. For food stamps, it does raise the age limit for work reporting requirements to 54, not 55, and lawmakers plan to phase this in over the course of three years and end the the policy in 2030. The bill would also create new permanent exemptions that get rid of work requirements for young adults ages 18 to 24 aging out of foster care and all veterans and those experiencing homelessness regardless of age. So these exemptions which expand access to the programs would also end in 2030. A Republican aide told me that they expect the overall number of people now subject to work requirements to be lower than what the original GOP proposal would have done because of the phase-in and the exemptions. I asked President Biden what his response was to Democrats being concerned that this policy could lead to more people going hungry because of the age limit increase, and he said that was a ridiculous assertion. Okay. Now, I know last Friday, the Treasury Department said June 5th, that's a week from today, as the date the country would default. Will that be averted now? There's still a long road to passage, but Biden and McCarthy keep saying that they're confident they will get their members on board. Here's President Biden talking to reporters last night. That agreement now goes to the United States House and to the Senate. I strongly urge both both chambers to pass that agreement. The timeline to avoid a default remains tight. McCarthy has vowed that House members would get 72 hours to review any legislation before a vote. The bill text released last night starts that clock. So the soonest a vote can come is May 31st, five days before the country is set to default on its loans. After that, the bill would head to the Senate for a vote on final passage and then to the president to sign. All right. That's NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thanks for breaking all this down. Thank you. What does it take to reach a deal like this one, brokered by Democrats and Republicans? Let's turn to Kenneth Feinberg. He's been involved in resolving some of the nation's most protracted and emotional disputes. Notably, he served as special master and independent arbiter for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. So these debt and spending negotiations were conducted behind closed doors. If you could paint a picture for us of what a difficult negotiation looks like, like this one. 
Well, a difficult negotiation is defined as a negotiation involving a major issue under the gun of a time frame. Yeah. And that's exactly what you had here. There was a deadline. Uh, one can uh, faint and parry and uh, sort of keep your powder dry until you approach what everyone agrees upon is a very important deadline to get the negotiations finished. And that's exactly what uh, occurred here under the wire with people negotiating behind closed doors, knowing that they either get a deal or there are serious consequences. Yeah, and in that time period, Democrats accused Republicans of holding the country hostage. Republicans said Democratic spending was to blame. How much of the trading of accusations, the multiple breakdowns in the negotiations, how much of that was a show? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a show. I would call each side trying to maximize its leverage mm-hmm. by warning the other side that there would be profound consequences. And I think that that's a standard uh, tactic in effective negotiation, leading with your uh, heavy armor, warning the other side that they will be to blame uh, as to those consequences if a deal is not uh, concluded. Is there a magic formula for reaching these kinds of deals? No, there's no magic wand. There are a couple of uh, um, items you can check off on an agenda. There's a deadline. It's a very important issue. Do you have the right people behind those doors uh, with the authority, the perceived authority, to cut the deal? Very important. Each side is only as candid as its belief that the other side has the right people there with authority to settle. Now, the big question that's open that you have raised in your show, Mm -hmm. can each side deliver? You know, it's very important that people believe that when you negotiate, you have authority to deliver uh, as a result of the negotiations. And we will see over the next day or two whether the administration and the uh, Republican Congress can deliver on this uh, negotiated uh, settlement. On that note, what would your advice to Republicans and uh, Democrats be right now as they try to get their colleagues on board to pass through this through Congress quickly? What's the alternative? I mean, you, you, you delegated to us the authority to negotiate. We've done that negotiation. We believe we have a pretty good barometer as to what you'll accept. And we've negotiated under the shadow of that authority. Now, for you now to tell us at the 11th hour and 59th minute that we can't deliver, our credibility will be seriously undercut. Does this deal strike you as a genuine compromise or did one side get more out of it than the other? Oh, I think it's a genuine compromise. You know, in an effective negotiation, you walk away saying, I didn't get all that I wanted. I gave up an awful lot. But at the end of the day, the reasonable parties reached an agreement. Kenneth Feinberg is an attorney specializing in conflict resolution. Thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you.
Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is set to continue his run as Turkey's longest-serving leader. Amid high inflation and despite having faced widespread anger at his government's response to a devastating earthquake this year, Erdogan won Sunday's runoff with 52 percent of the vote. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us from Istanbul to talk about this. Uh, Peter, Erdogan's showing in both rounds of this election surprised a lot of people, but not Erdogan and his supporters. So what did the president have to say about that last night? Well, he spoke at the presidential palace in Ankara, and he tried to shift to a more positive tone, uh, saying, for instance, no one lost today. But after running a campaign filled with sharp rhetoric, he couldn't resist slipping in a reference to Kurdish militants that Turkey's been battling for decades, who he's been accusing the opposition of cooperating with. Erdogan made a point of mentioning their stronghold in Kandil in northern Iraq. But here's a bit of what he said. Now, besides attacking the Kurdish fighters, he's saying, we love Turkey so much, how could this nation not be loved? And now he also made multiple references to brotherly love, positive times ahead. But it was pretty clear that Erdogan has lost none of his combative leadership style. Uh, and throughout this campaign, Erdogan has continued to attract a loyal following that continues to back him despite the hardships of recent years. And hearing their leaders celebrate another victory, that was all music to the ears of his supporters. The thing is, though, there are still millions of people homeless in an area that was struck by an earthquake. How did he do there? Well, he did quite well even there. Initial results show Erdogan ahead in nine of the 11 provinces most affected by the February earthquake. That killed some 50,000 people. Comments from voters there suggest, despite the fact that there's widespread anger at the government's sluggish response to the earthquake and its role in allowing contractors to build unsafe buildings in an earthquake area in the first place, they still thought Erdogan was a better bet to reconstruct the region and get people back into homes. Is there a sense at all, Peter, that the opposition maybe chose the wrong candidate to send up against Erdogan? There will, of course, be debate along those lines. It's already started. Uh, a coalition of six parties settled on 74-year-old Kemal Kalichdorolu, uh, the head of the main secular party, as their candidate. He has an impeccable reputation for honesty, never linked to a political scandal. But there has also been a sense for years that Kalichdorolu never quite had the charisma, the political appeal, to defeat Erdogan and his ruling party. These days, the opposition mayors of both Istanbul and Ankara are seen as more popular, stronger candidates. And there's been some grumbling that Kilic Dorolu's insistence that it was his turn to run cost the opposition what might have been its best chance to unseat Erdogan. Now, I know their congratulations for Erdogan are pouring in from capitals around the world. What are people saying uh, about what maybe another five years of Erdogan's leadership might mean for Turkey's relations with the rest of the world? That is a big topic, and that'll be playing out for some time. Some people are hoping with this victory, Erdogan might consider returning to the reformist ways he started out with earlier in his tenure. But others point out, after failing to get Turkey admitted to the European Union years ago, Erdogan has been looking to the east. He's developed strong ties with Russia. That concerns Washington and others. One question now is, will Erdogan press forward with a more eastward-looking foreign policy? And if so, what will that mean for Turkey's longstanding role as a solid NATO ally in this dangerous neighborhood? NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Peter, thanks. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get the details behind Texas AG Ken Paxton's impeachment and the divide it exposes among Republicans in that state. Paxton is expected to stand trial before the Texas Senate. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. In 1993, then-Secretary of Defense Les Aspen quietly shared a blunt message with the nation's defense contractors, consolidate or close up shop. They acted. The number of aerospace and defense prime contractors shrank from 51 in the 1990s to what we refer today as the Big Five. And they've got more influence over the Pentagon than ever. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny and breezy with a high near 68 today. Tonight, clear skies and a low around 46. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 65. It's 66 degrees in Boston at Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Dickinson College, awarding the Rose Walters Prize for Global Environmental Activism to Combat Climate Change and Inspire Future Leaders. Learn more at dickinson.edu rwp. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. In the early part of the 20th century, the Great Migration saw millions of African Americans leave the South for urban areas in the North. Now a new study sheds light on another Great Migration. Between 1900 and 1940, about 5 million white Southerners also left the region. And the study shows how the political and cultural influence of this migration continues to be felt today. My colleague Michelle Martin spoke to Samuel Bozzi, one of the authors of the study. He's also an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, Bozzi started out talking about where these migrants landed. They really did settle all over the United States. And while they did go to places in, say, the Northeast and kind of the economic heartland, at least in the early part of the 20th century, they went there, in, at least in relative numbers, uh, much less than they did to places out in the Western United States. 
One important fact uh, that really distinguishes the Southern white diaspora from the Southern black diaspora in many ways is that the white diaspora really could be found across the density uh, divide. They settled in very rural places, in small towns, in big towns, in big cities, mm. whereas the black diaspora is really concentrated in some of the biggest cities, the most dense places in urban America. So that's fascinating. One of the things that I think is most striking and one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention is that you set forth the theory that this white Southern diaspora has had a really profound effect on the country's politics. Tell us why. The first kind of important fact really stems from uh, the point that I just highlighted, which is that they were really geographically diffuse. And so why is that important in the American electoral system? Well, our, our electoral college really overrepresents low density places, low population states, um, relative to higher population places and states. Well, just to clarify for folks, so South Dakota has the same two senators as California. So there's that. What else? That's right. So that's really key. And then in the other is the fact that these migrants in many ways really did bring new or at least intensified forms of religious conservatism to new parts of the country. They brought evangelical Protestantism from the American South and brought that with them to many places across America. And evangelical uh, Christianity becomes much more politically engaged as a voting block and really mobilized in the 1970s. That's certainly one really important feature. And then the other is racial conservatism. And so if you look at survey data from the 1950s, 1960s, you can see that the Southern white diaspora looks much more similar in terms of their racial attitudes to the white populations living in the South as compared to those living in the rest of the country. Do you think that the influence of this group was mainly that they settled in places that weren't as populous, so they kind of had an outsized impact? Or do you think they influenced their neighbors? So I think we certainly find evidence of that outsized impact in these places that are less populous. But the other thing that we find is that indeed there does seem to be a very kind of localized intergroup contact. You may be going to the same church every Sunday. Your children may be going to the same schools. So I think there are kind of a lot of really localized neighborhood-based channels through which these migrants could be influencing their neighbors. One thing that we do see uh, quite clearly in the data is that just to give you a concrete example, take a non-Southern uh, white individual. If they are moving to a community where there happens to be a large Southern white migrant population, what we actually are able to see is that when you're exposed to that Southern white diaspora among your very local neighbors, you begin to give your children more religious names and tend to send a strong signal uh, to others of your religiosity. So, so, so let me be clear again that your report is based on statistical data. Can you tell us why you're so convinced that you can draw conclusions about the influence of this migration in the early 20th century on election results decades later? The first is that we're indeed focused on that early wave of mass migration of whites out of the South in the early 1900s. 
And we're detecting a kind of impact on politics and a rightward shift in the communities to which they're migrating as early as the, the 1960s. And of course, the 1960s were this kind of critical juncture in, in American politics as conservatives really realigned behind the Republican Party. And we saw the kind of mass exodus of Southern white voters from the Democratic Party. We also see that they begin to lose voters from the Southern white diaspora outside the South and the communities in which that diaspora had begun to build uh, deep roots in the middle of the 20th century. And then, of course, uh, as partisan politics have really calcified in America, we've really seen the imprint of that diaspora persisting all the way through uh, to the last, uh, say, five or six presidential elections. Before we let you go, where do you want to take this research next? What we're doing is really digging deeply into the immediate post-Civil War era and basically looking at the migration of white individuals out of the former Confederate states and tracking those migrants who grew up living in a, an economy that was uh, governed by slavery, they really played an important role in diffusing Confederate culture Confederate nostalgia outside of the American South hmm. and helped grow and mobilize uh, white supremacy in new forms in many places outside of the American South. So why you might see a Confederate flag in places you don't expect. Precisely. Samuel Bozzi is the researcher and writer on the paper we've been talking about. It's titled The Other Great Migration, Southern Whites and the New Right. Thanks so much for talking with us and sharing this really, really interesting research with us. Thanks very much for having me, Michelle. This is NPR News. Welcome to Monday. Today's top stories are next, coming up at 745 on Morning Edition. The spouses of fallen members of the U.S. military can lose their benefits if they remarry before age 55. We learn about efforts to change that at 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at Perkins.org slash Changing Lives. And Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, WestonNurseries.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Kyiv are reporting more Russian airstrikes today against targets in Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kharkiv says there were several injuries. 
Russia has attacked Kyiv more than a dozen times this month alone. Uh, early this morning, the Ukrainian military says it shot down more than 40 missiles and drones over Kyiv overnight. And yesterday, on the day Kyiv celebrated its 1,541st birthday, Russia launched a record number of drones at the city. And these are powerful Shahed drones made by Iran. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will serve a third term after winning the country's presidential runoff election yesterday. The House is expected to vote this week on a bill to raise the debt ceiling. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached a compromise over the weekend on legislation that prevents a default. A vote in the House is expected on Wednesday. NPR's Dave Mistich says one provision of the bill allows a natural gas pipeline project in Virginia and West Virginia to move forward. First proposed in 2014, the Mountain Valley Pipeline has seen a number of hurdles, including court challenges to the permitting process brought by environmentalists. Now, a section of the bill to lift the debt ceiling calls on an expedited approval of the permit needed to finish the Mountain Valley Pipeline project. This is NPR News. This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Plenty of places to beat the summer heat are now open in Massachusetts. The Department of Conservation and Recreation opened over 80 state beaches and waterfronts this weekend. The department says lifeguards will be available at those locations on the weekends. State-owned pools are expected to open at the end of June. Plymouth is once again giving free rides around the town's interest points through its Ride Circuit electric car program. Lee Filson is head of the Plymouth's Convention and Visitors Bureau. He says the service operates like ride sharing with drivers taking people anywhere within the Plymouth Historic District. We decided to test pilot it last year. It was just an incredible success. People loved it. And so we're, we brought it back this year and it's it's probably going to end up being a permanent fixture here in Plymouth. Ride Circuit will operate three electric vehicles that typically run from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every weekend now to Thanksgiving. People need to download the Ride Circuit app to use the service. A new statue in Dedham honors the legacy of a local Civil War veteran who escaped slavery. The statue of William Benjamin Gould was unveiled this weekend. Gould escaped slavery in North Carolina in 1862. Family members tell the Boston Globe he and his wife settled in East Dedham nearly a decade later. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Red Sox lost to the Diamondbacks in Arizona yesterday. Final score was 4-2. to two. The Sox have the night off before returning home to Fenway tomorrow. That's when they'll start their series against the Cincinnati Reds. The Celtics are hoping to make history in TD Garden tonight. If they win Game 7 against Miami, they'll be the first NBA team to ever win a playoff series after losing the first three games. Whoever wins tonight's game will take on the Denver Nuggets in the NBA championships. Tip-off is at 8.30. Clear skies and breezy today with highs in the upper 60s. Tonight, those fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, highs in the mid-60s under sunny skies. It's 66 degrees in Boston. At 7.34, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. 
More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Ken Paxton, the Republican Attorney General of Texas, has been suspended from his duties as he awaits a trial before the state Senate. This follows a vote by the GOP-led State House of Representatives to impeach him over allegations of bribery, abuse of office, and other misconduct. Sergio Martinez-Beltran, who covers politics for the Texas newsroom, was in the House chamber during that vote on Saturday, and he joins us now. Good morning. Hi, Leila. Hi. So what was the mood like in that chamber during the vote? Well, it was very somber. The whole impeachment vote lasted about four hours. Members of the House General Investigating Committee laid out the evidence against Attorney General Paxton. And, you know, this is a bipartisan panel. So both Republicans and Democrats went into detail over Paxton's alleged misdeeds involving one of his political donors. And one of the big accusations is that Paxton used the office of the Attorney General to intervene in an FBI investigation against his friend. He even hired an outside attorney for this, despite his staff telling him not to. And a reminder that Paxton was indicted by federal authorities in 2015 and still hasn't gone to trial yet. Some of these articles of impeachment are related to that. Now, we should mention some Republican members raised concerns about the whole process, but didn't defend Paxton, which I thought was interesting to hear. Yeah, now only a simple majority was needed, but most Texas House members voted to impeach, right? Right. 121 members voted in favor of the 20 articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton. So that means nearly all Democrats and most Republicans. I talked to Texas State Representative Ann Johnson. She's a Democrat who serves on the House General Investigating Committee. She says she's not surprised to see so many members of both parties vote this way. Public integrity is not partisan. And this was an overwhelming vote to recognize that the top cop was on the take, engaged in, um, as accused, issues of bribery, public corruption, official abuses, abuse of capacity, and so many other uh, potential state crimes. Again, Johnson is a Democrat, but Republicans have also said Paxton has acted like he's above the law. One of the Republican members even said from the House floor that Paxton had called members and threatened them with political consequences in their next election if they voted to impeach. Now, um, now we should note that Paxton has denied any allegations of wrongdoing and has lashed out against the impeachment proceedings in the Texas House, calling it a sham, illegal. And as you point out, though, many of his fellow Republicans are part of this impeachment process in agreement. What do we expect to happen now that it goes to a state Senate trial? So first, the House would have to select members to serve as impeachment managers in the trial, and they would be presenting the case in the Senate. And then that chamber will then conduct a trial, and senators will have to decide whether to convict Paxton. Now, the threshold in the Senate is higher. A a two-third vote is needed to convict. And it's important to note, Leila, that Ken Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton, is a state senator, and she's required to be in attendance. Now it's unclear if she will recuse herself. And how rare is it to see impeachment proceedings like this in Texas? 
really rare. Only two other public officials have been impeached in Texas history, a governor in 1917 and a judge in 1976. And this issue is also rare because Paxton is beloved by Republican mm -hmm. voters. He's friends with former President Donald Trump and was a prominent election denier, even trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. So all of this is historic. It's unprecedented. And quite frankly, it's pretty wild. Sergio Martinez Beltran covers politics for the Texas Newsroom. Thanks so much. Thanks. Climate change is increasing the fire risk on the mostly treeless Great Plains. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports on efforts to get prairie dwellers to adapt to the new reality. Home builder Josh Poser lives in the small town of Denton, surrounded by the grasslands of eastern Montana. The last thing he thought he'd be doing is fighting a wildfire in December. But that's exactly what happened a couple of years ago as 70-mile-an-hour winds pushed flames across 10,000 acres. Late that night, you know, we're putting some members out in the yard and sprinkler on the roof, and they had patrols going all over the place. Overnight, flames consumed Poser's house and 24 others. Don Pyra is with Montana's state fire agency. He says firefighters were quickly overwhelmed because unusually there was no snow on the ground in December and it was way too warm. And it was 56 degrees in the middle of the night. That's not normal. Researchers say the warming climate means more dry Decembers and a lot less snow cover across the Great Plains, meaning a lot more fire risk during a typically windier time of the year. University of Florida researcher Victoria Donovan led a 2017 study that found fire activity on the Great Plains has increased by three and a half times in recent decades. She says that a century of fire suppression has also allowed more trees and woody vegetation to grow, making fires more intense. There's a lot more opportunities for these wildfires to occur and also for them to be a lot more destructive. That kind of research isn't really embraced in conservative eastern Montana. Official growth policy in the county that had the big fire explicitly opposes President Biden's 2021 executive order on climate change. Mike DeVries is chief of the volunteer fire department in Denton, the town of 200 that was burned over a couple of Decembers ago. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Montana and I, I know we've been through droughts. I don't know that people just attribute it to one thing. But DeVries acknowledges that fire was well outside the norm. That was by far the, the most active and unbelievable year that we'd ever had. Anna Capella with Montana State Fire Agency is trying to help people better prepare their homes for fires. She says it's a tougher sellout here than in more forested parts of the state. You can blame climate change, the drought, whatever you want to blame, but it ultimately starts with people's homes. Kayla will make suggestions for property owners like shifting to metal roofs and less flammable building materials or cutting back trees and shrubs near their home. But there's been little interest so far. I feel like that's people's beauty, that's people's paradise. But Josh Poser, who lost his house in the December fire, is still living with his family in a camper. He takes the threat of another wildfire more seriously now. Standing inside the unfinished walls of the new home he hopes to finish this fall, he says they are building in a more fire-resilient way to avoid losing their home again. There will be concrete siding, metal roof. Before we had, everything was wood. Wood windows, wood siding, wood everything. So it was a recipe for disaster. 
Those are exactly the kind of changes state fire managers would like to see more people on the Great Plains make. They're hoping others will be more likely to do the same if they see their neighbor do it first. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Denton, Montana. This is NPR News. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, analysts are weighing in on why Recep Tayyip Erdogan won re-election for president of Turkey despite devastating earthquakes there and the most serious political challenge of his tenure. Upper 60s today under sunny skies. It'll also be a bit windy. Skies stay clear tonight and it'll be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, slightly cooler in the mid-60s under sunny skies. It's 66 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Russell's Garden Center. A shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years. Route 20 Wayland. 30 small businesses in Boston will receive one year of support and technical assistance from the city. They're part of the city's new Legacy Small Business Program. Alicia Porcena is the director of small business for the city's Office of Economic Opportunity and Inclusion. She says the program is partly an effort to protect neighborhood businesses from gentrification. How do we have development without displacement? How do we really support our local local businesses to maintain the history and the cultural vibrancy that they've helped to create in these neighborhoods. The city will provide support for things like marketing, planning, and updating technology. Businesses needed to operate in the same location for at least 10 years to qualify for the program. People living in wealthy Massachusetts communities are 12 times more likely to own electric or hybrid vehicles. That's according to a recent analysis by the Boston Business Journal. It found the Boston suburb of Weston has the most electric vehicles per capita in the greater Boston area. Brockton has the fewest. Artifact Cider Project will shut down its Cambridge taproom this week. The owners say financial issues brought on by the pandemic is behind the closure. Wednesday will be the last day the Central Square location is open for business. Artifact will still make cider at its taproom in Florence. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. For military widows and widowers, getting married again can be costly. Federal rules cut off benefits to widows and widowers who get remarried before the age of 55. Joining us now is Military Times reporter Leo Shane III. Leo, can you give us an idea of how much a veteran surviving spouse stands to lose if they remarry before 55? Yeah, it's quite a bit of money. I mean, these these military survivor benefits can be generous. So we're talking anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars a year. That can total up to to over forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars a year. So it's a it's a real financial burden for these families. Yeah, and these rules can lead to something that you call relationship limbo. Tell us uh, what relationship limbo means. Yeah, basically these these family the, these spouses after they've lost a loved one they go through the grieving process. If they want to move on and get remarried to uh, to a new uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, they've got to make these financial decisions. They've got to decide whether or not their love outweighs that kind of big financial burden that comes in. I mean, it's it's it seems cruel, but to to ask someone, hey, is it really worth marrying this person if you're going to lose forty thousand dollars a year? It just puts these these spouses who've already gone through so much into into an awkward position. Yeah, what a tough choice deciding between love and money in this case. Yeah. And you interviewed a woman who went through this. Her husband was in the army and then he took his own life when she was just 24 years old. What happened when she eventually decided to remarry? Yeah, her name is Rebecca Morrison Mullaney. And I actually spoke to her years ago when she before she had gotten remarried, um, trying to make these decisions, trying to understand, you know, what exactly this would be. Ultimately, she did decide that she wanted to move ahead with with having a family, um, you know, raising a new family, having an, a new husband. Um, but it did. It cost her forty two thousand dollars a year to do this. And now she's on Capitol Hill talking to lawmakers saying, look, this just isn't fair. This feels like you're you're saying that I'm all settled and that this first marriage never happened. You're erasing my my husband, Ian, uh, who who I loved and wanted to stay with, but but couldn't because of circumstances. So it's not just the the money. It's also the feeling that that the government's saying, well, this is this is over now. This is settled. And frankly, his service didn't count. His service is gone. I mean, it just sounds like these rules are keeping military widows and widowers from getting remarried. Yeah, and that's what's happening in a lot of cases here. You know, we we talked to folks over at uh, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. They've been tracking this for a while. They said only about 5% of surviving military spouses under the age of 55 get remarried because of these financial penalties. After 55, you do see quite a few spouses who who will will step in, who've been in long-term relationships, who've sort of, sort of kept their relationships hidden from the government just to keep doing this. But this could impact, you know, upwards of 60,000, 65,000 uh, families across the country uh, who are just looking to, to move on with their lives. Yeah, and you write that legislation uh, recently introduced uh, maybe might address this issue. Tell us about the Love Lives On Act. Yeah, this is the this is the latest attempt to try and fix this problem. It simply would remove that penalty, allow these spouses to get remarried before 55. So it's already been introduced in both the House and the Senate. It's got support from Republicans and Democrats, and uh, we'll see we'll see if there's some support for it this year. All right, that's Military Times reporter Leo Shane the Third. Leo, thanks. Thank you.
This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on this Memorial Day. Coming up at 810 on Morning Edition. On this holiday known for grill outs, we learn about the origins of the hamburger. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy have reached a compromise on the nation's debt ceiling. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won another term in office in the country's runoff election. And Russia is continuing attacks on Ukraine today in the largest aerial attack on the country since the start of the war. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR. WBUR supporters include Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Upper 60s today. It'll also be breezy and sunny. Tonight, upper 40s. Then tomorrow, mid-60s and sunny. It's 66 degrees in Boston at 750. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. When Grammy Award-winning musician Marcy Markser learned she had breast cancer, of course she got sad, probably moments of mad. But then she got funny. I'm talking about my breasts, which I don't actually do generally in public. <laughs> but I find when, when I talk about my breasts, other people think it's funny. So Markser and her wife, fellow Grammy winner Kathy Fink, turned Markser's diagnosis into a musical comedy film. All Wigged Out follows Markser's cancer diagnosis, treatment, and recovery, a process that took seven years. It began when Markser took a call from her doctor while her music students strummed the song, You Are My Sunshine. I'd had a biopsy. I was teaching the ukulele, and my doctor explained that the results were positive. And I said, positive? Positive in a negative way? Because, you know, it means something very different to a regular human than it does to a doctor. (laughs) Yeah, positive should be good. So right away, some things about the whole medical process didn't make much sense to me. They seemed a little backwards and a little bit funny and a little worth poking fun at. So Marcy, and I'll bring you in here too, Kathy. I mean, you get this diagnosis. I don't know what that's like to hear news like that, but I don't know that I'd be like, you know, I think this is a musical. <laughs> no, it didn't hit me quite that way in the beginning. <laughs> it took a while. Yeah. Um, the first thing that you do is you kind of dig into what is it that you have to deal with. Yeah. And you're sort of in crisis mode. Yeah. And then we started needing to process. And that's when the seeds of All Wigged Out came. 
Part of that processing was the realization that valuable information often comes from unexpected sources, like the wig shop they visited after her doctor told Markser she might lose her hair. Amy's of Denmark, it's every girl's dream. Amy of Denmark was the wig shop in Wheaton, Maryland. And when we walked in, this woman, Sandy, said, what's your diagnosis? What's your cocktail? Who's your doctor? This was all stuff she was familiar with. And once we gave Sandy all the information, she looked at Marcy. She said, when's your first chemo? Marcy said it was two days ago. And Sandy just looked at her and said, honey, we got to make a plan. You're going to be bald in 10 days. Wow. My first instinct when I found out I was for sure going to be bald, I bought some watercolor markers. Why? (laughs) To draw on my head. (laughs) What? For decoration, since I wasn't going to have hair. (laughs) I thought maybe I'd have the neighborhood kids help me get dressed up for parties. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. (laughs) One of the songs, speaking of information that came from a different source than the doctor, is a song about unsolicited advice. Someone came up to me when I, right after I had the biopsy, I didn't know anything. And he said, so what are your chances? And it, it scared the heck out of me. I just couldn't believe somebody would say that. You know, I was like, geez, I hope nobody asks me that again. Yeah, that's very direct. What I really find is if your house gets hit by lightning, people know what to say to you. It's like, oh, can I help? Do you need a place to stay? Do you need a blanket? Do you need uh, some food? But if you have cancer, people who haven't experienced it or or haven't had a loved one experience cancer really don't know what to say to you. And still, they keep talking. (laughs) I don't know what to say, so I'm going to say a lot of inappropriate things. But don't go answering questions that no one's ever asked unsolicited advice. A lot of the material for All Wigged Out came from cartoons, memes, and musings that Marks are posted on social media. I was supposed to keep a journal of my symptoms so I could report to the doctor. And the things I wrote down in that journal were really things like positive in a negative way. (laughs) From day one, those were the kinds of things I wrote down. Oh, so a lot of these like really sort of funny takes are from things in the moment that you said, that you observed, that you felt, that you wrote down. Everything. So I ended up being kind of a chemo coach for a bunch of people and connecting with other people who help patients get through. So this film is the story, Marcy, of your journey with cancer, but it's also the story of your relationship, the two of you. You've been musical partners for 40 years. You're married. At one point in your treatment, Marcy, you apologized to Kathy. I'm so sorry. What for? I screwed up our lives. I don't know when or if I'll ever play music again. Do you want to go do some shows without me? Uh, definitely not. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch movies together. I'm going to watch you sleep. Oh. I'm going to go to every chemo. I'm going to go to every doctor's appointment. And we're going to get through this one day at a time. Now, your roles are a bit reversed right now, I understand. Kathy, you recently found out you have breast cancer? I did. Uh, We are living in a little chapter that we're calling the irony and the ecstasy. (laughs) (laughs) So 
I'm working with our team that's promoting the film All Wigged Out, partially from my chemo chair. Wow. Um, and I do have a diagnosis that is not unsimilar to Marcy's, and it has a terrific prognosis. You know, our roles are reversed, and I'll tell you, Marcy knows what to do. Hmm. One thing we know is patients try to live their life to the best of their abilities, and doctors are trying to save your life, and those are two very different things. Yeah. So we'll use humor where appropriate, where we can, but we do understand that we're in, in walking two lines. One is the process of making sure that Kathy's going to be fine and, and live a long and happy life, and the other is living our lives while we go through this. Yeah. Kathy Fink and Marcy Markser, I um, I don't know that I've ever used the word joy to describe a conversation about cancer, <laughs> but this was really a joy. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. You complete my sentence. You finish my meal. You steal my ice cream. You finishing it. All Wigged Out is streaming online and available on DVD. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldig. And I'm A. Martinez. Lots of sun today with a bit of a breeze in upper 60s. Tonight, clear skies and upper 40s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact in a changing world. bc.edu slash msae. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A deal reached to avoid a federal default would suspend the nation's debt limit through 2025 and limit government spending. It's Monday, May 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on this Memorial Day, we learn about plans to build a national monument for those who've died in the longest U.S. war, the global war on terror. Also, a new study provides insight into how effective multivitamins actually are. Even within one year, there was evidence for slowing of age-related memory loss. And this hour. Well, the short name for the Erie County Fair is the Hamburg Fair. So Frank looked up at the sign and said, it's a Hamburg sandwich. The origins of the hamburger on this holiday known for some of the first summer grill outs. In sports, Red Sox lose, sunny, breezy, and upper 60s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The House is scheduled to vote this week on a plan to avert the first U.S. default in history. 
President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed over the weekend on legislation to raise the debt ceiling for two years, while freezing non-military spending for one year. Now they must get their supporters to agree before a June 5th deadline. NPR's Jimena Bastillo has more. There's still a long road to passage, but Biden and McCarthy keep saying that they're confident they will get their members on board. Here's President Biden talking to reporters last night. That agreement now goes to the United States House and to the Senate. I strongly urge both both chambers to pass that agreement. The timeline to avoid a default remains tight. McCarthy has vowed that House members would get 72 hours to review any legislation before a vote. The bill text being released last night starts that clock. NPR's Jimena Bastillo. We'll get new information about the U.S. job market this week. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on what investors will be watching for during a holiday-shortened trading week. The job market has been remarkably resilient this year, with employers adding an average of 284,000 jobs in each of the first four months. The unemployment rate in April was just 3.4 percent, matching the lowest rate in more than half a century. On Friday, the Labor Department will report on job growth and unemployment for the month of May. That could be a key piece of information for the Federal Reserve, as policymakers try to decide whether to raise interest rates again at their next meeting in mid-June. After reports this past Friday of stronger-than-expected spending and stubborn inflation, betting markets are leaning towards another quarter-point rate hike. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A portion of an apartment building in Davenport, Iowa, collapsed yesterday. Seven people were rescued. So far, there are no reports of fatalities. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports. The cause of the collapse is not yet known, but it happened as work was being done on the building's exterior, following reports of bricks falling from the structure earlier in the week. Davenport contractor Tad Makovec said he was inside putting up a support beam when part of the complex collapsed. There was a lot of screams, a lot of uh, cries, a lot of people saying help. Um, when the building came down, but that did not last it, um, two or three minutes, and then the whole area was silent. The Davenport police have asked people to avoid the downtown area as rescue efforts continue. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. Russia launched airstrikes against the Ukrainian capital Kiev today for the third consecutive day. Ukrainian officials say their forces shot down the missiles and drones, but the wreckage struck a neighborhood. The attacks came in the middle of the day when the city was crowded with people. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's optimism about summer tourism in the Berkshires this year. Tourism officials there say visitor spending has bounced back over the last two years of the pandemic. As WBUR's Ninjor Emomeka reports, they expect that to continue. Many people flocked to the Berkshires during the pandemic to escape urban life and enjoy the outdoors. Jonathan Butler is the CEO of One Berkshire, an economic development agency and tourism council. He says the pandemic brought a wider demographic to the local economy. We're not just seeing baby boomers and, and Gen X visitors. We're seeing, we're seeing millennials and we're seeing some younger Gen Z visitors that are coming here. Um, and hopefully that's something that we can continue to sustain. Butler says so far he's seen encouraging numbers for lodging. And many performing arts venues have full schedules that should draw visitors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sininjor and Wameka. 
Many people have the day off in honor of Memorial Day. That means plenty of services around the Boston area are affected. All of the city's municipal buildings are closed today. Street cleaning is canceled, while trash pickup is delayed in many neighborhoods. If you're taking the T, keep in mind subways and trains are running on a Sunday service. For those of you driving, there's some good news. Parking meters don't need to be fed in most communities, including Boston. The USS Constitution is marking Memorial Day by honoring crew members who died while serving on the ship. The ship, also known as Old Ironsides, was built in the late 1790s. It's the oldest U.S. Navy ship still in service. Lieutenant Commander Rob Dreitz is the executive officer of the Constitution. He says the names of more than 390 crew members who died while serving on board will be read today by the current crew. I think it ties the sailors even closer to the Constitution, realizing that she is a commissioned warship, and she's one of our few warships today that has actually served in battle and has lost sailors uh, at sea. A bell on the ship will ring for each name. Then at noon, there will be a 21-minute gun salute. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. The Red Sox lost to the Diamondbacks last night by two runs. The final score in Arizona was 4-2. to two. The team has the night off before returning home tomorrow to host the Cincinnati Reds. By the end of the night, the Celtics will either be headed to the NBA championships or be done for the season. They're facing Miami at the Garden, and a win would be historic for the Celtics. No NBA team has ever won a playoff series after losing the first three games. Game 7 tips off at 8.30. Sunny and windy for your Memorial Day today. Temperatures will reach the high 60s. Tonight, the winds will die down as things cool off. We'll have clear skies with lows in the high 40s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the mid-60s. It's 67 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has won a third five-year term in a runoff election. The incumbent, who has dominated Turkish politics for 20 years, defeated his main challenger, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu by four points. Joining me to discuss what Erdogan's win means for Turkey and its relations with fellow NATO countries is Asla Aydin Tashbash. She's a Turkey analyst and visiting at the Brookings Institution. Good morning. Good morning. So this was Erdogan's biggest challenge to power so far, but despite an economy in shambles, criticism over how his government dealt with these devastating earthquakes, and the concern around his anti-democratic practices like suppressing dissent, he won the vote. What makes him so popular? Well, uh, President Erdogan is a good campaigner. There's no doubt about that. He's a vicious campaigner in the sense that this campaign has been marked by attack ads and accusations and AI-generated footage of the opposition leader as if he's with uh, terrorists, PKK, and uh, so on. 
But it is also the case that large segments of society, particularly in conservative heartland, identify with Erdogan. Mm. They uh, could not connect with the opposition's message of democracy and rule of law. Instead, Erdogan's idea, a very strong message about a rising Turkey, a new power, a country that's destined to be a global power in the 21st century. In fact, he called his campaign the century of Turkey, resonated with the conservative heartland. Mm. Uh, There is also you know, uh, other issues. But I think that at the heart of it, Erdogan, in the end, sold a very appealing idea, which was to make Turkey great again. What would a third decade of Erdogan mean for Turkey? It's not clear, probably much of the same. I think that people who voted for opposition and wanted change from different walks of life are disappointed. They're mm. disappointed on because it will mean continuation of Erdogan's economic policies, some of his unorthodox or, uh, for lack of a better word, eccentric ideas on economy and interest rates and whatnot would continue. And of course, people who are seeking greater freedoms, hoping to come out of jail, hoping that they could live in a country with free speech and perhaps free media are also disappointed. Now, Erdogan has said he has a special relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Turkey is a key NATO member. What does Erdogan's re-election mean for Turkey's relationship with Western countries and fellow NATO members going forward? The president has grown closer to Vladimir Putin for a number of reasons. Part of it is dependency and economic dependency. And in part, it's also because the two leaders share a worldview and a disdain for liberal world order. That said, I think Erdogan is trying to play a balancing act of sorts between the West and Russia. But the Western leg of that table is missing. He's had very poor relations with the Biden administration, with European leaders. So from this point on, I think he'll be looking to see if there could be a reset uh, with uh, the West, with Europe and United States. But I think he would. the election results mean that he would want it on his own terms. Asla Aydin Tashbash is a Turkey analyst and a visiting fellow at Brookings Institution. Thanks for being here. Thank you. The National Mall in Washington, D.C. features memorials for World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, but no memorial commemorating the longest and most recent U.S. war. Michael Rod Rodriguez wants to change that. He's the president and CEO of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. He is also a combat veteran. Michael, thanks for joining us on this Memorial Day. No, thank you for uh, providing me the opportunity to chat with you guys on this sacred day. So, okay, the war on terror began uh, after September 11th, um, the attacks on September 11th, and didn't end until the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan in 2021. Why do you think it's important to build a memorial for this war? Well, I, I think it's important that we all share a duty within this nation to honor the brave men and women that are willing to step forward and serve and protect the sanctities of, of liberty that we all enjoy every single day. So, you know, to not honor the two generations that have fought in the current war because we'll have men and women deployed across the globe in you know, performing duties in different theaters. You know, it's just a duty we need to fulfill. Why do you think it hasn't happened? 
Well, I mean, if you really think about it, it's, it's, we started this in 2015. The foundation came together in 2015, and it's a very long and arduous process, as it should be. This is our, our nation's front lawn, you know, the National Mall. So we've been at this for uh, about eight years now, and we're really excited to be getting close to the finish line now. Do you think it's because people maybe didn't have a sense of it, like, just ending or just not having a sense of when it would end? Well, in so... I'll go into the framework. There was a law that exists that states a war has to be over for a period of 10 years before mm-hmm. an, uh, this a national war memorial to be built. And that was something that we, you know, the foundation came together, recognized, and we passed our first piece of legislation in 2017 uh, seeking the exemption from that law. And so there's a, a few different obstacles that we have faced, but, you know, we're focused on completing it here pretty soon. Michael, what's your vision for the memorial? What would it look like? Well, we... It's, we are in the 24 step process to build a National War Memorial. We have now that we've secured our location, which is just north of the Lincoln, uh, off of Constitution Drive, we finally got our spot. We can now move into the design phase. So we are really excited to be, uh, you know, uh, announcing the designer here pretty soon. So my vision is just that, uh, you know, the, the design team that we pick honors the, it makes it the most inclusive, reverent, and, uh, you know, welcoming memorial that we could possibly imagine. Can you give us a, a hint of what it might look like, what it might have? Um, you know, I, I can't. I, I really, we haven't <laughs> even really got into that okay. quite yet. You know, we want to provide the artist, which is the designer, the opportunity. We give them the guidance, provide input from all of our stakeholders, goals our family members, veterans, uh, and, and the like. So, we, we, as an artist myself, I'm, I'm kind of staying out yeah. of it. So I just want to be sure that we provide the artist the opportunity and the, and the most importantly, the inspiration to capture, you know, uh, our, our mission. How about this, Michael, then, if as an artist yourself and as a veteran, what's the one thing you'd like to see in it somehow, if, if you could have a choice? I would say I would love an element of water, and that's something that mm-hmm. we've talked with a lot of, uh, you know, our stakeholders, uh, veterans, schools, our family members, those that have served and, and, and their families, and uh, a lot of people feel water. And as humans, we have an affinity for water. Water brings us together. It unites us. It provides that healing aspect, which is, um, you know, really, really important. So I can say that. I would, love, I would love to see some water. You served during the war on terror. You lost comrades, friends. Uh, what would it mean to you to be able to one day be able to visit this memorial? Um, it, that's going to be hard to capture into words. You know, I, I really think it would... Um, provide an opportunity for those of us that have served, those of us that have lost loved ones um, to reflect. Uh, You know, none of us have ever joined the military for any accolades or anything like that, but just to uh, provide us an opportunity to come together and reflect. That would be really, really important. One last thing. How are you spending this Memorial Day? Well, I'm actually in Washington, D.C., so uh, I was blessed to I'll be having breakfast with the president, first lady and other guests this morning. I was fortunate to be invited to go there. And then today uh, we will be playing taps at 5 p.m. at the location. That's Michael Rod Rodriguez, a combat veteran, president and CEO of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. Thanks a lot uh, for uh, joining us. Thank you very much. Hope everyone have a blessed day.
Memorial Day, this unofficial start to summer, may also be the start of grilling season. By the time it's over, Americans will have spent more than $1.5 billion on meat this year, hot dogs, brats, and hamburgers. But how exactly did the burger become a cookout standard? Well, for the answer, we turn to Chris Carosa. He literally wrote the book on burgers. And in Hamburger Dreams, he traces the first hamburger to 1885 and two brothers, Frank and Charles Menches. They started this business of selling food at fairs, county fairs, regional fairs, and they had to differentiate themselves from everyone else. So they specialized in pork sausage sandwiches. Until they couldn't get pork. Frank went to the butcher to buy 10 pounds of pork. And the butcher says, I'm not going to slaughter a whole pig for you just for 10 pounds because I won't be able to sell the rest of it. The butcher sold them ground beef instead, and the Mensch's brothers' improvised sandwiches were a big hit at the fair in Hamburg, New York. Somebody comes up and asks, hey, what do you call this thing? Well, the short name for the Erie County Fair is the Hamburg Fair. So Frank looked up at the sign and said, it's a Hamburg sandwich. The Hamburg sandwich grew more and more popular throughout the late 1800s. People were spending leisure time going to fairs, going to games, horse races, outdoor activities, and they needed a way to quickly eat something. So these types of foods were invented to address that need. But Carosa says by the 1920s, burgers were thought of as strictly for the masses. And so that called for a little creativity to cover up just who was eating these burgers. So there are newspaper articles describing rich people driving fancy cars, calling up little boys from the neighborhood, handing them money. And the boys would run into the White Castle restaurant, get a bag of hamburgers, run back and give it to the people in the car. The people in the car were too embarrassed to go and buy the hamburgers themselves. Bridging the wealth gap through a tasty burger. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, activists trying to bring attention to Vietnam's human rights record are asking wealthy countries and donors to address that history before providing funding to fight the effects of climate change in the country. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. All right, so you hit snooze one too many times. You can't find your keys. But Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. 
and New Art Center in Newton, with summer art camp for grades 1 to 12, including teen programs in digital arts, fashion design, ceramics, and more. NewArtCenter.org. Sunny and breezy with a high near 68 today. Tonight, clear skies and a low around 46. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 65. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston at 820. Your inbox is another easy way to follow the news from WBUR. Every weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. Wealthy nations and private investors are set to give Vietnam billions of dollars to help fight climate change in a way that boosts the country's economic development. But as NPR's Michael Copley reports, the climate deal has come under fire because of Vietnam's human rights record. In 2021, Vietnam said it would eliminate or offset its climate pollution by mid-century. The pledge was the result of a campaign by leading climate activists. State media reported at the time that Vietnam would need financial help from wealthy nations to meet its goal. Vietnam wants to strengthen cooperation with international community in sustainable investment and development programs and projects in the time to come. A year later, a group including the G7 and big investors said they'd get Vietnam at least $15.5 billion through a program called the Just Energy Transition Partnership. But by the time the deal was announced, climate activists who'd paved the way for it were imprisoned on what human rights experts say are trumped-up charges. Emily Palami Pradichit is a human rights lawyer in Thailand. She says the way the deal was handled leaves a troubling impression. That countries who are supporting the partnership and international financial institutions did not really care much about civil society and climate activists being in jail. Now, environmental and human rights groups are calling on President Biden and other world leaders to pressure Vietnam on its human rights practices. The groups want Vietnam to free all activists and stop suppressing civil society before it gets the climate funding. Activists say what's happening in Vietnam highlights a broader challenge of ensuring human rights are upheld as countries try to deal with the problem of climate change. Vietnam did recently release one of the climate activists, but so far, there's little evidence that the government is changing course. That's according to Ben Swanton. He works for a human rights group called the 88 Project. There's no desire or no political will to engage with civil society. Swanton says it's hard to see how a climate program that's aimed at benefiting local communities could succeed in that environment. Without the involvement of civil society, there will be no one to hold the government accountable when it backtracks on its promises. The White House and Vietnam's embassy in Washington didn't respond to messages. Plan for carrying out the funding program is expected by November. Michael Copley, NPR News.
Americans spend billions of dollars a year on supplements, including daily multivitamins. But there's debate whether all that vitamin pill popping promotes good health. Well, now a new study testing whether multivitamins can help protect memory has some pretty intriguing results. As part of our Living Better series, NPR's Allison Aubrey has been reporting on things that can help people live healthier lives. Allison, so what exactly did the researcher study? So they recruited a whole bunch of people, older people, 60 and older, men, women, about 3,500 of them. They had half take a placebo, half take a multivitamin for three years. Then they gave them a whole bunch of tests to evaluate changes in memory. Ooh, I love tests. What kind of tests? <laughs> All right. Well, you want to take one? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to give you a list of words, just really simple words. You listen and then repeat them back. Ready? Okay. Drum, curtain, bell, coffee, school, moon, garden, hat. Okay, I feel like I'm the winter soldier and I'm getting <laughs> activated to do some evil deeds. Okay, wait, drum, coffee, belt? Uh-oh, I got a feeling I'm not doing so well. Well, we'll see. We'll do it again at the end. So okay. these list learning tests, as they're called, they're meant to gauge your ability to kind of store and retrieve information. And so this is one way to evaluate memory. It turned out that the people taking a multivitamin in the study did a little better at recalling words. They were hmm. able to remember about a quarter more words on average compared to the people taking a placebo after one year. Now, I spoke to the study author, Joanne Manson. She's chief of the Division of Preventive Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Hospital. And she says her take is that this is beneficial. It is surprising that such a clear signal for benefit in slowing age-related memory loss and cognitive decline was found in the study. Even within one year, there was evidence for slowing of age-related memory loss. Now, just to be clear, on a list of, say, 20 words, that translated into remembering an extra word or two. <laughs> so not a huge effect here. Still, Manson thinks there's evidence that multivitamins are beneficial. Does that mean that we should all just take them? Well, you know, there's long been this thinking that a multivitamin, it can't hurt, it might help, so why not? But when they've been rigorously evaluated, it's really been hard to nail down benefits. So I called around to some physicians who treat older patients to ask them whether this new study is convincing. And what I basically heard was not really. I spoke to Dr. Jeffrey Linder. He's chief of general internal medicine at Northwestern University. He reviewed the results for us. They did some distraction tests that assessed kind of higher cognitive functioning. There were no differences in any of those other tests in, in years one, two, or three. So I kind of come back, this is intriguing, but you know, I would have hoped to have seen a bigger difference that would have led me to make different recommendations. He says when he talks to patients, he tries to have them focus on lifestyle choices and habits. He says he does see a lot of people who do take vitamins and supplements and they believe they're helpful. My big concern with all of the focus that people have on supplements and vitamins is it's distracting them from things that actually will help them stay healthy. The big ones, the things that really matter are good sleeping habits, healthy relationships, physical activity, and eating a healthy diet. Right. It comes back to tried and true, right? That's what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Basics. I mean, it's often these simple everyday choices. And I just want to leave you with one thought. The whole concept of a multivitamin is based on the idea that the brain and body require a bunch of nutrients for optimal health. 
If you don't eat well, a multivitamin might fill the gaps, but we tend to absorb nutrients much better through food than through supplements. So at the start of the summer, at a time when it can be easier to eat fresh local food, why not just lean into eating well? It can be fun and it can be social. You want to try the wordless test one more time? Uh, no, I haven't taken my multivitamin <laughs> yet today, Allison. That's uh, NPR's <laughs> Allison Aubrey. Allison, thanks. Thank you, A. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins weighs in on the end of the HBO series Succession, and there are spoilers. It's 8.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, offering a broad selection of landscape-sized trees, shrubs, perennials, and native plants in Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, westonnurseries.com and Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is urging Democrats in Congress to support the debt ceiling agreement he reached with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the weekend. It takes uh, the threat of catastrophic default off the table, protects our hard-earned and historic economic recovery, and the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. The president was speaking yesterday following weeks of negotiations. The 99-page bill caps federal spending over the next two years and changes work requirements for some recipients of government assistance. The House is expected to vote on the legislation on Wednesday. Evacuations are underway in the northern Philippines ahead of Typhoon Mawa. The storm is expected to hit the region tomorrow and Wednesday with sustained winds topping 100 miles per hour. Mawa did extensive damage to homes, vehicles, and power lines in Guam last week. Melissa Savaris is the mayor of Dedido, the most populous village in Guam, where she says some people are still without power. Power's been out for five days. Food in the freezers have, are now spoiled. The mayor says FEMA has been assisting people in need in the U.S. territory since that typhoon passed last week. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The YMCA of Greater Boston says it's hiring a real estate firm to reevaluate whether it's getting the most possible out of its properties. It owns more than a dozen properties in the city and suburbs. The head of the M- 
uh, YMCA tells the Boston Globe he wants to figure out if the Y should expand into new cities. He also wants to know which of its existing properties should be invested in, which should be renovated, and which would benefit from partnerships. Researchers in Massachusetts say the decline of some North American shorebirds is accelerating. Brad Wynn is with the Manomet Conservation Center in Plymouth and a co-author on the study. He calls the findings alarming. He hopes this study serves as a call to action for conservationists as well as state and federal agencies. I am an optimist, and I think that working internationally, nationally, with partners that are interested and able, I think we can turn the tide on some of these birds that have shown some of the greatest declines. Many of these birds migrate from as far away as the tip of South America to the far northern Arctic tundra. Their coastal habitats between New England and Brazil need to be in good condition for the birds to thrive. Massachusetts still needs to hire lifeguards after some state pools and beaches opened this weekend. The Department of Conservation and Recreation plans to hire 700 lifeguards. The state bumped up the hourly wage from $22 to $27 an hour. Officials hope that gets more people interested in the job. They're also offering a $1,000 bonus for lifeguards who work the whole summer. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Red Sox fell to the Diamondbacks in Arizona yesterday. Final score was 4-2. The Sox will be back in Boston tomorrow to host the Cincinnati Reds. The Celtics are on the cusp of making history. A Game 7 win over Miami at the Garden tonight would make the Seas the first NBA team to ever win a playoff series after losing the first three games. Tonight's winner will go on to play Denver in the NBA championships. Tip-off is at 8.30. Clear skies and breezy today with highs in the upper 60s. Tonight, those fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, highs in the mid-60s under sunny skies. It's 67 degrees in Boston. At 8.34, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The deal that President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached over the weekend will, if approved by Congress, raise the debt ceiling and avoid a government default. And it puts some boundaries on fights over the budget for the next two years. To find out what this means for the economy and for the federal debt, we turn to David Wessel. He's director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. Good morning, David. Good morning, Layla. So the legislation has lots of pieces. What are some of the highlights? Well, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are both doing a lot of spinning. They are both claiming victory, but they can't brag too much because each of them needs votes from the other side to get this through Congress. So here's some of the highlights. One, the defense budget will go up about as much as President Biden proposed in his budget, though not as much as some hawks wanted. 
total annually appropriated domestic spending will not keep up with inflation for the next couple of years. There are caps on that. But which individual agencies and programs will be cut depends on the details of appropriation bills that have yet to be written. There's also an agreement, though it's not spelled out in the 99 pages of legislative text, that $20 billion of the $80 billion that the IRS won last year to crack down on tax cheats will be diverted to other domestic spending. All the money that President Biden won last year for infrastructure, climate change, semiconductors survives intact. And we won't have to worry about the debt ceiling for another couple of years. Now, how much will this deal restrain federal debt over the next few years? A little. It's important to remember that the only spending cuts in this deal involve annually appropriated spending for things other than defense. That mm -hmm. slice of the budget is only about 10% of all federal spending. This deal doesn't touch the big drivers of the federal deficit, healthcare and social security, nor does it do anything to close tax loopholes or raise revenues. So the federal debt will climb a bit slower than projected if this agreement gets through Congress. We don't have any hard numbers yet, but the heavy lifting remains for the future after the 2024 presidential election. Remember that most of the provisions of the 2017 tax cut expire in 2025, so we'll have a fight over taxes then, and the Social Security Trust Fund runs dry in about 10 years. Now, many economic forecasters are predicting that the U.S. is headed for a recession later this year or early next year. If this package passes, does it make a recession more or less likely? Well, less federal spending does mean less money pumped into the economy, and that will slow economic growth for the next couple of years by perhaps one or two tenths of a percentage point. So it's definitely a negative. But the effect of this agreement will be overwhelmed by all the other things going on in the economy, the lingering impact of Fed rate increases, inflation, energy prices, and so on. But importantly, this removes a major cloud over the economy and over financial markets. One less thing to worry about. So that's a big plus. Some Republicans and Democrats are, are threatening to vote against this legislation. What happens if it doesn't pass? Well, then we'll be right back to where we were last week, facing a possible default. Treasury Secretary Yellen says without an increase in the debt limit by June 5th, the government won't have enough money to pay its bills. Back in 1990, there was a deal on budget that got voted down by the House and they came back and got a new one, but that took three weeks to work mm. out, and we don't have three weeks this time. David Wessel is director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution. Thank you, David. You're welcome. As the war in Ukraine enters its 16th month, over the weekend, Russia launched its biggest drone strike since the war began. Ukrainian officials say the attacks that continue today are mostly targeting the capital, Kyiv. The drone strike comes as Ukraine prepares for, or may have already started, depending on who you talk to, a long-awaited counteroffensive aimed at driving out the Russian forces. Joining us now from Kharkiv is NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Joanna, tell us about these attacks. So uh, right now, a, I'm in Kharkiv, which you mentioned, and it's close to the Russian border, and air raid alarms have been going off every few hours. But the real target has actually been Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. Uh, Russia has attacked Kyiv more than a dozen times this month alone. Uh, early this morning, the Ukrainian military says it shot down more than 40 missiles and drones over Kyiv overnight. And yesterday, on the day Kyiv celebrated its 1,541st birthday, 
Tuesday, Russia launched a record number of drones at the city. And these are powerful Shahed drones made by Iran. Uh, Ukraine's military said it shot down all but two of these drones very early on Sunday. And falling debris from the drone wreckage killed at least one person, injured another two, and set fire to the top of a couple of buildings. You know, we keep hearing about a Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, Joanna, do these attacks have anything to do with that? Yeah, well, A, that's what military analysts suspect, uh, that the Russians are trying to weaken Ukraine ahead of the counteroffensive. Russia appears to be trying to deplete Ukraine's air defense missiles and damage the systems that launch these missiles. Uh, meanwhile, Ukraine has been saying for weeks that it's on the verge of launching its counteroffensive, but they've ramped up this talk in the last few days. And some officials are saying, well, we are already carrying out counteroffensive actions. Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malier tried to explain what that means on local TV. Uh, here she is speaking through an interpreter. We have been active in several areas and are now carrying out some counter-assaults in the east. This can also be considered part of the counter-offensive. They are all part of a big plan. And other officials have pointed to more actions like destroying Russian oil depots, railway lines and weapon stockpiles in occupied areas. I spoke to the special forces fighter in southern Ukraine and he told me, look, do not expect this counteroffensive to look like this epic World War II movie with like a huge column of soldiers storming a place. He said it's all happening quietly and according to plan. Okay, so then what would victory look like uh, in this counteroffensive? Uh, well, the Ukrainians want to reclaim as much land as possible toward the eventual goal of driving the Russians out completely. But it's going to be challenging. Russians control about 15 percent of Ukrainian land in the east and the south. And Russian forces have really fortified their positions in the southeast, where analysts have suggested Ukrainians could break through and cut the road supply links for the Russian army. All this is to say that Ukrainians need some kind of victory to keep the nation united and hopeful and to satisfy the West, which has supplied billions of dollars in military aid to help Ukraine. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kharkiv. Joanna, thanks for checking in. You're welcome. This afternoon in All Things Considered, a landmark deal averts a water shortage crisis on the Colorado River, but some experts say no one should be celebrating. Did it go far enough? Listen where you are, on your computer, phone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. You're starting your Memorial Day with WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, millions of Americans are traveling on the roads this holiday weekend, but fewer of them are doing that in RVs. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at the decline in the RV market. You're invited to WBUR's next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at WBUR.org slash open meetings. Upper 60s today under sunny skies. It'll also be a bit windy. Skies stay clear tonight and it'll be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow slightly cooler in the mid-60s under sunny skies. It's 67 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. The Massachusetts Building Congress has a new executive director. Michelle Hobson will be the new head of the Business and Networking Group. Hobson spent 15 years advising nonprofit boards. She'll succeed Jan Breed. Breed was with the group for three decades. Somerville-based Form Energy is breaking ground on a new battery factory in West Virginia. The company makes iron-air batteries that help reduce dependence on fossil fuels. Over 750 people will be employed at the factory. A popular Cambridge comfort food restaurant made the list of Yelp's top 100 burgers in America. Veggie Galaxy ranked 93rd on the list, despite being a vegetarian and vegan restaurant. Yelp says plant-based burgers are more popular than ever. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. It's officially over. The last episode of HBO's hit Succession aired last night, and viewers finally learned who would take over for the monstrous mogul Logan Roy as head of the family-owned entertainment conglomerate Waystar Royco. Now, I'm sure some of you may not have watched the finale yet, so you might want to turn the volume down for a few minutes because there are big spoilers coming up. To talk about the blockbuster ending, we're joined by NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hi, Eric. Hi. All right, we've got two surprises. Eldest son, leading candidate for successor, Kendall Roy, was not able to take control of his father's company. Instead, Tom Wamsgans, the estranged husband of Logan's daughter, Shiv, was installed as the company's CEO, and the deciding vote was Shiv's. Here's a clip of Kendall, played by Jeremy Strong, trying to convince Shiv, played by Sarah Snook, not to vote against him. I am like a cog built to fit only one machine. I can do this. I don't think you'd be good at it. What? I don't even believe you. I don't believe you. I don't. I don't think that you would be good at this. Did you see this coming, and and what does it mean? Okay, I'm going to be honest. I predicted Kendall would win in a column that I wrote for NPR.org over this past weekend, but on NPR's air back in April, because of how the story was unfolding then, I actually said... I'm putting my money on Tom. Tom Wombs. Tom! I really feel like he's the dark horse here. Okay, so you did predict him at some point. (laughs) Why did you pick Tom as the dark horse? 
So uh, on the one hand, it's because Tom is the perfect servant to powerful men. Now, mm-hmm. Waystar Royco's board sells the company to an Elon Musk-style tech mogul who essentially tells Tom he needs a front man to enact painful change. Not a partner, but a lackey. And Tom has constantly shown he's willing to betray anyone, including Shiv, to get closer to power. But the other reason this happens is because Shiv ultimately decides she doesn't think any of her siblings can or should run their father's company. And that's a bitter and accurate truth that strikes at the heart of the entire story. Now, there have been a lot of big moments in succession during this final season. The death of Logan Roy, a nightmarish election episode, a dramatic funeral. Was there anything else in this finale that measured up to those moments? Well, I think this final episode reminded us that the story's always been centered on the three youngest kids of Logan Roy and how they're bound to each other and ultimately pitted against each other by their dysfunctional childhoods. They each reveal that their father promised the top job to them at different moments when he tried to manipulate them. And there's this wonderful sequence in the finale where the three siblings decide to work together to keep their company and family hands. And I'm watching this thinking, why am I rooting for these terrible people (laughs) to retain control of this powerful company? But, you know, so much of succession is about this family and their inability to connect with each other, their inability to face the terrible truth about their lives. And those moments came together in a really spot on finale. Now, this show has been the center of pop culture conversation, like few other series in recent memory. Why do you think fans love this show so much? I think Succession works on three levels. First, it's a wickedly astute and funny dark comedy about how wealthy people who are often undeserving control the levers of power in the world. It's also a look at a family that wants to connect with each other but can't help tearing itself apart. And finally, it's the story about insanely wealthy people who are completely miserable. And for those of us who aren't in the 1%, that might be some comfort in seeing that money doesn't always bring fulfillment. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Coming up at the top of the hour on morning on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on Russia's latest assault on Ukraine, Erdogan's win in Turkey, and the first Saudi women astronauts visit to the International Space Station. It's 849. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. While pharmaceutical companies are known as the main driver of the opioid crisis, some experts say it's become a political issue on a global scale because of fentanyl production outside of the U.S. We should not shy away from indicting Chinese and Mexican officials and businessmen complicit in the illegal trade or in subverting cooperation. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Congress will be asked to approve a deal reached by President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy that would raise the debt ceiling. The Texas State Senate plans to try Attorney General Kevin Ken Paxton after the State House voted to impeach him over allegations of bribery and other misconduct. And in Uganda, activists are condemning new anti-gay legislation signed into law by the president. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Upper 60s today. It'll also be breezy and sunny. Tonight, upper 40s. Then tomorrow, mid-60s and sunny. It's 66 degrees in Boston at 851. Turkey's president and his unorthodox economics win another term. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And by Odoo, a full suite of integrated business management software dedicated to helping businesses of all sizes with manufacturing, project, and inventory management. Odoo.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshour, in for David Brancaccio. After a runoff election, Turkey has a winner in its presidential race. Current President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will serve another five-year term, his third. The country is facing serious economic challenges. You think inflation here is bad? It's more than 40% in Turkey, and that's an improvement. In his victory speech, President Erdogan said battling prices in rising prices is Turkey's most urgent issue, but that it's not difficult to solve. Inflation would continue to fall. Economists say President Erdogan's policies have contributed to that inflation. That the Turkish lira slipped to a record low following the election results, the BBC senior international correspondent Orla Girin reports. The president's supporters celebrated late into the night, welcoming the beginning of his third decade in power. In his victory speech, he promised unity, but in the next breath targeted both the opposition and the LGBTQ community. He didn't dwell on the economy, but experts say under his stewardship, it's heading for catastrophe. His opponents are warning of the dangers of a latter-day sultan with too much power in his hands. The opposition is licking its wounds and forecasting troubles ahead for Turkey. That was the BBC's Orla Giren. This Memorial Day weekend, an estimated 12 million Americans are taking trips in their campers, vans, and trailers, according to the RV Industry Association. But fewer of them may be doing it in brand new RVs. That is because, after an unprecedented surge in popularity the past few years, shipments of the vehicles are now down over 50% as we head into the summer. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. At the height of the pandemic, campers and trailers were flying off the lot at Tim's RV in Irving, Massachusetts, says owner Tim Christensen. There was days we would sell five or six a day. Now it's more like three or four a week. Christensen says that's actually closer to what it was like before tons of people decided to take socially distanced vacations or get into hashtag van life. Chris Doherty runs Doherty RV Consulting. I think there's a little bit of market saturation out there, too. Doherty says the industry has seen cycles before and in past downturns. Even if people weren't buying new equipment, they were going out and still using their RVs. And that means potential business for parts and repairs. Also, the customer base is shifting, says Monica Geraci with the RV Industry Association. Over the past few years, we have brought in a significantly younger and more diverse RV buyer. Who will eventually be in the market for new RVs. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. 
No numbers today. U.S. markets are closed for Memorial Day. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects not just done, but done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at Viking.com. Ever since the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX last year, the crypto industry has been in the spotlight with regulators. We just got a proposal for the first set of global rules to govern crypto from the International Organization of Securities Commissions. These rules would cover everything from market manipulation to how customers are treated. The world's biggest crypto exchange, Binance, has been weighing in. Binance no longer has any customers in the U.S. because of regulatory issues. The BBC's Will Bain recently spoke with an executive there, and he joins us now for more. Hi, Will. Hi, Sabri. So what are we hearing from Binance when it comes to tighter regulations on crypto? Yeah, it's been an interesting year, actually, in terms of crypto firms in the wake of the collapse of FTX. They all have been pretty keen, I think, to come on and show regulators and their customers through the media that they aren't FTX. Of course, Sam Bankman-Fried's collapsed crypto exchange. Some, though, feel that they're paying for FTX's Reputation, if you like. Patrick Hillman, Chief Strategy Officer for Binance, was here in London for a crypto conference and said whilst he accepted his firm had made some mistakes, he thought regulators now were going too far, particularly in the US, to clamp down on crypto. And frankly, the company and the industry made mistakes early on. And now, you know, Binance is going to have to work with regulators to rebuild confidence. Listeners might remember, Sabri, that Binance has been in hot water with the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission, which filed a lawsuit in March against the exchange, accusing it of illegally serving U.S. clients. It also pulled out of a bid to buy Voyager, another crypto firm, because of what it called a hostile environment. Well, we just got some new proposals for crypto regulation at the global level, and more rules are most likely on the way, given the meltdowns we've seen in, in the crypto world. So how would the big players, how would Binance like to see this process play out? I think the straightforward answer is they want a seat at the table. They want to have their voice heard in how these are being shaped. The problem is some of the things that they see as kind of red lines, I guess this ability to work across borders, to work anywhere, are things that a lot of these regulators think is a big problem. Isn't the whole point of crypto that it exists like outside of the system? So how does crypto stay crypto and at the same time embrace oversight and regulation? I think that is the question right now, isn't it? As you say, for a lot of people, it's libertarian. It's They didn't want to put their money in banks or on a stock market. Patrick Hillman, though, of Binance, ultimately thinks a balance on that can be struck. Regulation is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, regulation is a very good thing when it's done properly. One of the biggest challenges we have as an industry in sort of reaching the first billion users is the perceived lack of security and safety. Let's just be very frank here. Self-custody is still a very challenging thing. The tech is still very new. And so bringing in proper regulations to ensure that there is a, a standard level of user protections put in place is going to help the industry grow. Whether that bid to go mainstream Sabri works or not, I guess all remains to be seen, really. All right. My Marketplace colleague, the BBC's Will Bain. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. 
From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. And Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.